The following Bible study was given on a Sunday morning at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship by Pastor Brett Metter. Let's get to it. Uh, it's the book of Isaiah is where we are, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. That's the way we roll here at Athey Creek. And we're in Isaiah chapter 12 this morning. Isaiah chapter 12. Many years ago, a weary traveler was hiking across the desert when he came across, um, you know, his, his time where he was just so thirsty. The sun was beating on his back and he was dragging his feet, hiking through this, this desert region when, when his, he realized his water supply was gone and his lips were chapped and he was just thinking, man, he's, he's surely going to die out there. When he saw off in the, the distance an old desert shack cabin that, you know, he, he thought, maybe there's a well, maybe there's water. And so he went there, and sure enough, there was an old dusty well pump, you know, the old handle type. And he went to pump it, and he pumped, and only puffs of dust came out of the, out of the you know, spigot. And so from there, you know, he, he thought, oh no, I'm, I'm doomed, you know. But then he saw below the pump a little, a little tin can that with a wire attached to the pump. And he looked in the little tin can, and there was a there was an old piece of paper in the tin can, and it had a note in it. And here's what the note said. Dear stranger, this pump is all right as of June of 1932. I put a new sucker washer in it, and it should last for quite a few years, but the washer, it dries out, and the pump needs to be primed. Under the white rock, I buried a jar of water out of the sun and corked up. There's enough water in it to prime the pump, but not if you drink some first. Pour about one quarter of the water into the pump and let her soak for a minute to wet the leather washer. Then pour the rest medium fast and pump hard. You'll get water. Have faith. This well has never run dry. When you get watered up, fill the bottle and put it back as you found it for the next stranger who comes this way. Desert Pete. <laughs> Signed, Desert Pete. Hmm. What do you do? Do you drink the little bit of water that's there that probably won't sustain you for the rest of the trouble that you're in, but just immediate gratification or whatever? Um, or, or do you use that water to try to prime, prime this old pump? You know, uh, it's interesting because people are thirsty today. And the problem is we go to sources that are not satisfying. And we go to the wells that are, that are dry and and sometimes, like old Desert Pete's pump here, you have to wonder, you know, by faith, am I going to trust that the wells the Lord has given to me are going to really do the trick? Are they going to satisfy my thirsty soul? And the, the, the thing I really want to share with you is there's no other well on the planet than that of the Lord's well that satisfies. Everything else will run dry, you'll be thirsty, and you'll even die. There's only one well that's living water that leads to everlasting life. And uh, the problem is some people don't trust that well. They're unwilling to put their trust in it. Um, and that's why you and I maybe can take a look at the single little verse that's tucked away here in this tiny little chapter in the book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 12. You'll notice it's only six verses. And yet it's, it's one of those chapters in the Bible that's small but mighty. I can't wait to get into this chapter with you on Wednesday night because it has to do with the millennial kingdom. And I'll show you that on Wednesday. But the single verse I want to draw your attention to is chapter 12, verse 3. 
And there in Isaiah 12, verse 3, it says, Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw out water of the wells of salvation. Now, one of the things as Bible students we always look for is when the word therefore is there, you have to ask what the word therefore is there for. <laughs> Why is the word therefore there? It's because of what was said previously. And we will see, you know, if you look ahead, if we cheat a little bit and look ahead for our Wednesday night study, in verse 1 it says, And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee, though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord, Jehovah, is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, you see, he, the, you know, the, the author here of Isaiah writing this little, it's a psalm in the book of Isaiah, actually. It's a little psalm tucked away in Isaiah. And he's basically saying, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Even Jehovah. The, the, that's the great I am of Moses' burning bush, Yahweh or Jehovah. And he says, therefore, because of the Lord turning away his wrath from me and bringing salvation to me, I'm going to go to that well of salvation with great joy um, and drink of that water of salvation. Now, like I said before, this is talking about a, a time where that ultimately will be experienced during the millennial kingdom. That is, um, I believe the way things are going to shake down is the next event on the list that has to happen prophetically is the rapture of the church when we're taken up to be with the Lord. Then there's going to be seven years of tribulation. Then Christ returns, his second coming, and he's going to come as a conquering king, not as a carpenter. He's not going to come to be judged by the world. He's going to come as the judge of the world. He's not going to come alone as a baby born in Bethlehem, but he's going to come on a white horse with 10,000s of his saints with him. Who, who are those saints? Us. We'll return with him on his second coming, according to the scriptures. Read Revelation 19. And there, Christ is going to come and rule and reign on this earth, where there's going to be a thousand years, called the millennium, a thousand years of peace and prosperity where Christ rules and reigns on this earth. And that thousand-year kingdom is uh, going to be glorious, the kingdom. That's why the Lord taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is the kingdom going to look? It's going to look like, like it is in heaven uh, because Christ is going to come and rule and reign. But again, uh, I'm going to get into all that on Wednesday night. But, but this well of salvation, you might say, well, good for them at that time. They're going to be at the millennial kingdom with the well of salvation. Great. What about us now? Well, see, the well of salvation it's a theme that we've seen throughout the Bible for all eternity. Uh, uh, and we understand that you and I, we can drink of that well. We can have that water that's everlasting water, water of life. We can have that today. And it has to do with choosing the correct well. It has to do with staying at the correct well and drinking of that well. And it's a spiritual well that's really important that you drink of it. Uh, you know, people talk about the fountain of youth. You know, does it ever exist that brings everlasting life? Well, the answer is it does exist, and it's the well of water that we're going to be talking about today. And, and I want to show you uh, four things about the well of God that's uh, eternal life, well of water of life springing up. 
And uh, there's four considerations. First of all, number one, if you're jotting down notes, I want to point out the well of separation. Then number two, the well of salvation. Then number three, the well of satisfaction. And then number four, the well of separation. Brett, you already said that one in number one. Yep, I'm going to do it twice, the well of separation. It's our first point, but it's also our fourth point. (laughs) I'll show you what I mean. So this idea of the well, well, first of all, number one, the well of separation. You see, as we look at the scriptures, there's stories about wells that are not the true wells, but there are other wells. I think maybe one of my favorite mentions is in Genesis chapter 26. Would you turn there with me? Go with me in your Bible to Genesis 26. Keep your finger here in Isaiah and go over to um, Genesis 26. If you recall, God gave to Abraham uh, this land uh, that would be eventually Israel the land of Israel. Uh, How many nations in the world can say God actually gave us our land? Um, Just literally, this is your land. Um, That's what God did for Abraham. But after Abraham uh, had uh, Isaac, uh, and as Abraham got older and died, Isaac returned to some of that land where Abraham was promised. And he found there just the desert. They lived in the Middle East there in the desert. But there were these wells of Abraham that had been stopped up by the Philistines. Uh, Wherever there was water, there was life and sustenance. So the Philistines would plug up these wells so nobody could get water out of them. So that they couldn't strengthen their armies and what have you. And it was kind of a, a, a tactic of the day. So Isaac goes to this place called Gerar. And that's where we pick it up in uh, Genesis chapter 26, verse 17. Check this out. It says, And Isaac departed thence and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac digged again the wells of water which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham. And he called their names after the names which his father had called them. And Isaac's servants digged in the valley and found there a well of springing water, or as your margin says, living water. That should be a little sign, by the way, this living water uh, that Abraham's you know, well was bubbling forth, living water. That's a term of the Bible that you'll recognize, and we'll see that as we get into it a little further. So they dig this first well of old Abraham, and it springs out living water. But here's what happens. Look at verse 20. It says, and the herdsmen or shepherds of Gerar did strive with Isaac's herdsmen saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of that well, Esek, which means contention because they strove with him. And it says in verse 21, and they digged another well and strove for that one also. So he called the name of that Sitna, which means hatred. So well, number one, strife and contention. Well, number two, hatred. So Isaac, interesting. He could have fought these guys. He could have pounded them if he wanted to. He had an army by this time, Isaac did. But rather than doing that, he was, he, was, he, he was looking for a place where there would be peace, where there was a place where he could hang out and not be in trouble, a, a well that would be not full of strife or contention or anger or hatred. Interesting. So verse 22, he removed from thence and digged another well. This is well number three now. And it says, for that they strove not. So he called the name of it Rehobot. Um, now that word Rehobot, it just means room. There's room for me here. Space, comfort, peace. That's the idea, Rehobot. And he said, 
For now the Lord hath made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. You see, old Isaac, he was digging up these wells, finding strife, hatred, contention, but finally he finds room for him where there's a well of living water springing up that's there for him to satisfy his needs. Um, I see that as really the traveling that you and I tend to do through this life when we're looking for what satisfies. We dig wells and we try to find satisfaction, but a lot of those things are career strife. That's not the answer. So many people think that somehow their career, if they can be successful in their career, that's the answer to life's problems. Nope. A lot of people get older and they end up retiring and they get the gold watch at the retirement party and they say, is this all there is? Is this what I was striving for to try to find the answers to life and my career? And you'll come up empty. You'll be thirsty still. Some people look to their hobbies or, or, or they look to um, things that become their addictions. And they keep feeding those addictions, hoping that their thirsty soul will be satisfied. But it's just nothing but strife and hatred and contention and problems. And they still are thirsty. And boy, I would, I would say, first of all, make sure you come to the well of separation, the one that's different, the one that's separated from this world and the promises this world makes. To separate yourselves out from the world and go to the well that's spiritual, that's eternal, that's living and powerful the well of God. That's where you got to go. We need to be careful not to try to keep digging wells in this world that cause the, only the strife and the contention. There's actually wells that truly bring satisfaction, and that's the well of the Lord, if you would. Um, and so we see here in Isaiah, um, there's a well where you will with joy draw water out of that well. And man, you'll find great salvation there. It says, So the well of separation, you know, before you were saved, before you even became a Christian, some of you were searching, 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 but you found, you found the well of of God and you found satisfaction. Um, So we need to find that well, keep digging, and you look where Jesus is. Now, that brings us to point number two, the well of salvation, the well of salvation. Um, Here we we seem to be tapping into that same well in Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3 in the millennial kingdom. But where does that well show up in the Bible? Well, I'd I'd say, um, you know, Exodus chapter 17 is a place where we see sort of a source of springing water. Do you remember the story there where the children of Israel were thirsty? And they were complaining, of course, against Moses saying, oh, you brought us out here to die in the wilderness and, you know, that whole thing. And in Exodus chapter 17, it says, verse 5, The Lord said to Moses, Go before the people and take the elders of Israel and your rod, wherewith you smote the river, and take in thy hand and go. And behold, I will stand before thee there on the rock in Horeb. And thou shalt make, uh, pardon me, thou shalt smite, smite the rock, and there shall be water coming out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel, because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? <laughs> Strife. But isn't it interesting that water came out of a rock? I mean, Moses struck the rock and water gushed forth in the middle of the desert. That's a pretty cool trick. But there's something huge there in that story. Now, now some of you remember there was another story very similar to this in Numbers chapter 20. But it's a little different. Some people think it's the same story, but it's not. It's two separate incidents. So years later, 
They're at the same place, that same rock, and they're thirsty again. And so the people are murmuring against Moses, same old thing. And then the Lord says, okay, Moses, this time I want you to go to that rock and I want you to speak to that rock. And so there's Moses at the rock of Meribah, of the rock of Horeb. It's the same rock here in Exodus 17, same place in Numbers 20, only different time. And, and, and this time he's not supposed to take his rod and smash his rod up against the rock. He's supposed to just speak to the rock and water will gush forth. Gush forth. Well, you know the story. The people were chiding against Moses and Moses, he loses his cool and he gets ticked off and he yells at the people and he says, you rebels. <laughs> now, now the word rebels there in the Hebrew also is better translated morons. <laughs> Can you imagine Moses so ticked? He's like, you bunch of morons. And, 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 and then he says, Much, must we fetch water for you? Uh, like Moses is the one that makes the water come out of the rock. Have you ever tried to take credit for what God actually was doing? Must I do this or that when actually it's the Lord? So Moses, he, he doesn't speak to the rock. He's so ticked off at the people. He doesn't do what the Lord told him to do, to speak to the rock. He takes his rod just like he did before and smashes it against the rock. And you know what? Water came forth and the people drank and they all lived. I can almost picture in my mind's eye, I don't know if this is how the story rolled, but this is what I picture. Moses is standing there going, Lord, why did you make the rock gush forth? These people should die. Bunch of murmurers and complainers and whiners. And look, you've been so good to them. And he's just standing there tapping his toe in disgust, watching these people drink. But the Lord says, Moses, you've blown it. I told you to speak to the rock and you struck the rock with your rod a second time. You're, you're only supposed to do that the first time. You, you might say, Brett, what, what does that have to do with anything? And why is there two stories? Um, and what's the deal with the striking the rock twice? Here's the problem. Remember the Old Testament is a giant picture book, illustrations of New Testament truths. The whole, the whole Old Testament is pointing to Jesus Christ. And there are these beautiful, perfect pictures And the rock that was smitten there by Moses is none other than Jesus Christ. Now, some of you might be saying, how do you know that's Jesus? I know it for sure. And it's not because I'm smart. It's because Paul the apostle tells us this. Paul says that that rock that water gushed forth was Jesus Christ. Let me read it to you. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. It says, and the the people did all drink the same spiritual drink for they, they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. If you read the whole chapter there, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, it's talking about all these Old Testament pictures in Exodus, and the rock that water came forth, that rock was a picture of a type, the word is typos in the Greek, a type or an example of Jesus. And the picture is perfect if you think about it. Jesus, who's the rock of our salvation, comes And he was smitten on the cross for our sins. And because Jesus, you know, died on the cross for my sins, and remember when they speared him in the side, water gushed forth and blood and water. And and man, we just see all the pictures. It's just through his being smitten, we are saved. And we can drink of the water of life that Jesus gives. So when Moses was, was there and he smote the rock, perfect picture, but he smote the rock twice. That broke the picture apart. Jesus was smitten once on the cross, once for all sin, Hebrews tells us. 
So Moses is sort of muddying up the waters of that beautiful picture of the rock. And that's why God calls Moses aside and says, Moses, you know, you, you misrepresented me on that. I, I told you to speak to the rock and you were supposed to, you're supposed to speak to it, but you, you hit it again. And because of that, Moses, you're not gonna be qualified to lead the people into Israel. I remember as a little kid being so frustrated because Moses didn't get to go in and he did all that work. For 40 years, he led those crazy people through the wilderness and he did so good and he blew his temper once. Okay, so big deal, Lord, come on, let Moses in. But the older I've become, the more I realize that he really did mess up there by destroying the perfect picture of the rock that water flows from. But also I've noticed the older I get that Moses, the Lord snuck him into the promised land. Did you know that? Oh, but Brett, he stood on Mount Nebo and he looked in and he didn't go to go in and, and then he died. Yep, but do you remember in Matthew chapter 17, there's the story of the transfiguration where Jesus was on the mountain there with the disciples in Israel and there appeared with Jesus, Moses and Elijah and they were talking with Jesus. God snuck Moses in and he ends up going in later. Um, and that's the way you and I are gonna get into the promised land, by the way, <laughs> into, into heaven is by God's grace, just like Moses got there. Well, all that to say, this is where in the Bible, we start seeing this beautiful picture of Jesus, the water of life, being the springing up well out of the dry desert. This beautiful picture of Jesus, the rock that was smitten, becomes this well of life springing up. And man, I love that imagery. Um, you know, have you ever been really, really thirsty? <laughs> when, when on a hot summer day, you're just super thirsty and then there's nothing better than just having that refreshing cold water um, that brings life. You know, and we can't live for very long without water. Um, you know, it's such an essential of human need, you know. And so it's a perfect picture. It's really Jesus who's our salvation. Now, it goes on and on. Jesus talks about this of himself over and over again. Um, we could talk about it a lot, but let me just give you one of my favorite examples. Now, did you know that the children of Israel, remember the rock that water came out of and the Lord provided water and food, manna, for the people of Israel for those 40 years? Well, the Jews to this day celebrate uh, a big feast called the Feast of Tabernacles or also called Sukkot. And that, the, the word Sukkot means tent. And the reason the Jews celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, it's, it's got a lot of uh, things that go along with this Feast of Tabernacles, but it would be the seven-day feast where they celebrate and remember when they were in tents uh, on their camping trip for 40 years wandering through the wilderness with Moses. So the Feast of Tabernacles, even to this day, you'll see the, the Jews build temporary structures in Jerusalem and they'll go out and camp out in their backyard in these tabernacles that they built um, that are tents, sort of. And it's still a celebration to this day. Now, there during the time of Jesus, they were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. But one of the things you should know, and this is kind of cool, on the seventh day of that feast, the Jews, the priests, would go down in a little miniature parade. And they would go down the southern steps, down into the old city of Jerusalem there, um, you know, to the city of David, that area, where the spring of Gihon would come out to the pool of Siloam. And there they would take this golden vessel and they would dip it in the pool of Siloam on the seventh day of the feast. 
And then they would carry it up, up, up to the southern steps, through the Holda gates, into the Temple Mount there. And then there would be a ceremonial pouring out of water on the Temple Mount. Now, what was that all about? Two things. It spoke of, interestingly enough, the the water that came with them in the wilderness that the Lord provided, his provision of life for them. But it also came, as they poured it out, to mean that there was coming the Messiah for the Jews. And he would be the one to be the living water, the life that they needed for, uh, for the Jewish Messiah. It was a remembrance that their, their Messiah was coming, the Christ. And so it was a, a parade. They'd pour out the water and they'd think, uh, you know, they'd even, by the way, they'd even sing the same songs they sang uh, you know, Hosanna, save now. Uh, you know, uh, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. They'd sing the same songs that they sang when Jesus was riding the colt into Jerusalem. They'd sing the same songs during that seventh day of the feast. But they'd pour out the water, singing the songs, hoping for the Messiah. You say, okay, Brett, great. Jewish tradition. What does that have to do with me? Well, this is where John chapter 7 comes in. And this is where contextually the situation, it makes so much more sense. Because you and I read the story and think, okay, why is Jesus suddenly yelling out that something in, on the Temple Mount? And it doesn't make sense. Now that you know what that means, check this out. It's John chapter 7. And it says in verse 37, John seven thirty-seven, it says, in the last day, that great day of the feast, which feast? Sukkot, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, the last day when they would get the gold vessel from the Pool of Siloam and bring it out and pour it out and commemorate the water of Exodus and the Messiah to come. And there they are pouring out the water on the Temple Mount on the last day of the great feast. And in that day, verse 37, Jesus stood and cried out. Um, Can you imagine the disciples are all just sitting around, all of a sudden Jesus stands up and says something, he yells out something like, Jesus, what are you doing? But check this out. Jesus stood up and cried saying, if any man thirst... Let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Do you see the, the radical thing that Jesus did there? See, we, we just think Jesus kind of arbitrarily stood up and said, I am the living water, and if you drink of me, out of your belly will flow rivers of water. We, we miss, this was the moment they were pouring water out of the Temple Mount, and Jesus stands up and says, I'm that water. And we know that he was making that claim because of the reaction of the people. Uh, in fact, right after that, look at verse 40. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, of, said, of a truth, this is a prophet. Eh, wrong. Those people are wrong. But check this out. Others, verse 41, said, this, shall be the, uh, this is the Christ. Ding, 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 ding. They got that one right. Uh, this is the Christ. But some said, um, shall the Christ come out of Galilee? Now, this cracks me up. They're, 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 they're confused. They're like, this guy's claiming to be the Christ. Some say, no, he's just a prophet. Others say, no, he's the Christ. They're the right ones. But there were other people saying, can, can the, the Messiah come from Galilee? See, they're asking that question. In fact, check it out. Um, it says, because should he come out of Galilee? Verse 42, hath not the scripture said that the Christ, the seed of David, will come from the town of Bethlehem where David was? See, isn't this funny? They thought he was from Nazareth or Galilee region. And he was. He grew up there, but he was born in Bethlehem. We all know that. But these people are confused. 
Jesus stands up on the Temple Mount and declares himself to be the Messiah, and people are bickering, where was he from? And what's the deal? But there were a few people who said, this is the Christ. Well, the story goes on where the Pharisees and those guys, they understood what Jesus was saying as they were pouring out the water, and Jesus says, I'm that water. They know that he's claiming to be God. They know that he's claiming to be the Messiah. They understand that he is claiming to be the King of the kings, the Lord of lords. And that's when they really sought to kill him. Right at that point, they started to uh, figure out ways they could trap him and trick him, which they never really could. But all that to say, Jesus made that declaration linked to the rock of Horeb there in Exodus 17, linking himself as the water of life, the Messiah. He is the, the salvation, not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. Man, that's the best part of it. Jesus is the one that satisfies your soul and will give you eternal life. Man, I love this, that um, Jesus is the well of salvation, Christ, the smitten rock. Okay, so number one, you have the well of, of uh, separation. It's only one well that will satisfy. You've got to separate from all the worldly wells, strife, contention, anger, all that stuff like Isaac. And you've got to come to the well where there's actually room and peace and blessing. And that's Jesus, the water source of life. And that brings me to the third point, the well of satisfaction. Our text tells us, therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the well of salvation. The well of salvation brings total satisfaction. Man, when you drink of Jesus Christ, you will thirst no more. You will never thirst again. Isn't this what Jesus told the woman at the well? Another story linking to the well, and we can talk about wells and stories of the Bible that link to water and well and refreshment and satisfaction and salvation. We can talk about this for months. But let's go to John chapter 4, that classic little story. If you turn there with me, John chapter 4, you'll recognize this story. It's another well. It's another discussion about Jesus being the water of life. But it's an unlikely situation. Jesus, in John chapter 4, it says that um, he left Judea and went you know, into the Galilee region. But then he said to his disciples, we need to go through Samaria. Samaria? What area? Samaria. No, Samaria is the name of the place. Um, and it was where the Samaritans lived. Now, who were the Samaritans? Hated by the Jews. Why did, they hate the, why did the Jews hate the Samaritans? Um, here's why. Remember our story of Isaiah where the Assyrians are going to take the northern ten tribes up into captivity? Those people, you know, 700 years earlier, were taken up by the Assyrians, and they sort of got assimilated into the Assyrian culture. So a bunch of Jewish people mixed up their race with the Assyrian people, and they became a Samaritan people. They were, the Jews looked at them as sort of uh, like with racial sort of tension. They said, you guys are a bunch of half-breed Jews. And the Jews were mad because they weren't supposed to assimilate. They weren't supposed to intermarry and mix with other cultures, according to the Jewish law of Moses. So the Jews hated the Samaritans. Now, they, that wasn't right. So it was really weird when Jesus says, we've we got to go through Samaria. And the disciples are like, what? We're not going through Samaria. That's where the Samaritans are. Of course, we're not going to go through there. But Jesus says, Jesus says, we need to go through there. And he came to a city in John chapter 4, verse 5, a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar. And it's near a parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. 
Now, Jacob's well, which by the way, same wells that would have been in Genesis 26 where Isaac digged the wells of Abraham because the wells of Abraham became Isaac's and Isaac's wells became Jacob. Are you with me? All these threads in the Bible continue to connect kind of in a profound way. This is, you know, thousands of years later. Same wells. And so he goes, Jesus goes to Jacob's well there in Sychar of Samaria. Now, Jacob's well, verse 6, um, was there. And Jesus, therefore, being wearied in his journey. Isn't that interesting that Jesus was physically tired? We think of him, well, he's God in the flesh, so he just supernaturally sprinkled powerful dust on himself that made himself suddenly feeling good again. Nope, he, he felt the same weariness you feel when you're weary. That's interesting. He knew all of our sufferings and our feelings. So he's wearied on his journey, and so he sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Mark that, the sixth hour that comes into play. So it says there in verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw out water from the well. And Jesus said unto her, give me to drink. Now his disciples, they'd gone away into the city to buy meat. And so verse 7, the woman said of Samaria, she said unto him, how is it that thou, being a Jew, ask me, which is a woman of Samaria, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now this is amazing. This woman says, are you kidding me? You're asking me to give you water? How is this possible? See, she had three strikes against her. Strike one, she was a woman. In Bible times, it would be totally, in those days, they thought it was culturally taboo to talk to a woman at the well like that. Men just ignored women and didn't even give them the time of day. Um, It wasn't right. It was a very chauvinistic, um, you know, uh, kind of culture. But here's Jesus who talks to a woman, but she's a woman, strike one against her. Number two strike is that she's a Samaritan. She says, how is it that me being a woman of Samaria, that you're even talking to me? And so Jesus is sort of breaking the social norms big time, a woman of Samaria. But what's the third strike? She's there at the sixth hour of the day. Did you know in Bible times, uh, the first century time, that there were certain times that they would go to the well? And, you know, the wealthier people or the uppity-ups had their time to go to the well, the popular, socially up people, and they would go there at the early part of the day. But as the day progressed, then as the hours would go, then there were certain times where the lowlifes, you know, the homeless, um, the women, but also, see, there was a time that, that many scholars believe this woman was going to the well when someone of bad reputation, this woman very possibly was a woman of ill repute, if you know what I mean. Maybe she was a prostitute, and there's evidence of that here in the text, but also having to do with the hour of the day that she's there at the well. So it's so weird. It, 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 you know, Jesus just walks right up to this well, sits down at the, at the hour when the lowlifes are there, and, and this woman of Samaria, so she's stunned. That's why she's saying, how is it that you being a Jew... Uh, talk to me, a woman of Samaria. She's like, what's going on here? But see, I love it. Jesus isn't there to fill his, you know, thirst. He's there to do something totally different. She, he, his answer is in verse 10. And Jesus answered and said unto her, if thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith unto thee, give me to drink, 
thou, you, would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. Hmm. There's an old well that's all murkied up by the rich people who came earlier, and they've been dipping their buckets in or whatever. And he says, but if you would ask me, I would give you living water, fresh water running over the rocks of a like brook, rather than just this old well in the dirt. Um, it's, it's kind of an interesting picture, the living water. Um, and the woman said unto him, sir, now notice she changes her tune. Before she was derogatorily saying, you being a Jew, how is it that you? Now she says, sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou the living water? Where are you going to get this living water? You don't even have any bucket. See, she brought her water pot, the Bible says. She's got her water pot. She sets it down, and he says, would you give me the drink? And he said, if you want to let me give you the drink, that I would give you a drink that's living. You'll never thirst again. Well, you don't even have a pot. The well is deep, she says. So she asked this question. She said, are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well and drank thereof of himself and the children and all of his cattle? Now she's getting somewhere. She's perceiving he's not just an average ordinary Jew who hates Samaritans. But she says, you're going to give me living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? The answer to that is yes. (laughs) Uh, But she's almost saying, nobody's greater than Jacob. Are you saying you're greater than Jacob? Yep. And Jesus answered and said again unto her, whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. He might have pointed to the well at that. You know, this water, you're going to be thirsty again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Right here is where I think this woman wants to be saved. She wants to have that thirst in her soul. Whatever her life was doing up to that point was not satisfying to her. And she, you can tell, she quickly says, I want that. Give me this living water you're talking about. Now, there's something that needs to happen. Before you're saved, did you know you have to have sort of repentance where you just know you're a sinner and confess, yep, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. Before you can be saved, you need to know you need to be saved and you need to repent of your sins. Jesus is gonna give her an opportunity to sort of come clean, to repent. She says, I wanna drink this water. So Jesus said unto her, go and call thy husband and come hither. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, liar. No, no, he didn't say that. That's just me making stuff up. (laughs) But he could have said that and he would have been correct. She was sort of lying. But check out what Jesus says. I love how Jesus is so kind and gracious to the sinner. He's always kind to the sinner. Um, So he, he, he says, go get your husband. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, thou hast well said that you have no husband. Because it says, for thou hast had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband in that thou hast said truly. You've spoken true that you have no husband because you've had five husbands, and the one you're living with right now is not your husband at all. Now, do you think Jesus was looking at her condescendingly, sanctimoniously, like, oh, what a loser, this woman who's got all these men she's sleeping with? No, Jesus is giving her an opportunity. You've said well that you have no husband because the one you have 
right now is not even your husband. And like he's calling her out graciously, I might add, to recognize that she's a sinful woman and she needs the water of life. So the woman, now she's changing her. First she says, you're a Jew. And then she says, sir, I perceive thou art. Well, check it out. Verse 19, the woman says unto him, sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. Now she's getting closer. She knows he's greater than Jacob. She knows that he's now something like a prophet because he told her all the things that she had done and kind of her sins are open before him. She knows that now. So once you find out somebody's a pastor or a prophet, you know what everybody does? This happens to me as a pastor. As soon as people find out I'm a pastor, they ask me a Bible question. It happens every time. You know, the other day I was talking to some guys that were uh, um, at work and they they were uh, doing some construction work and they found out I was a pastor and they started asking me Bible questions. You know, you get the funny ones. Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Did Adam have a belly button? Like the goofy questions, there's some good ones too. But this woman, she says, I perceive thou art a prophet. And so then she goes to Jesus and and check out what she says. She says, our fathers, the Samaritans, worshiped in this mountain. By the way, the Samaritans worshiped at a place called Gerizim, a mountain. The Jews worshiped on Mount Zion, which was Jerusalem where the Temple Mount was. And the, the Samaritans and the Jews were arguing, saying the true mountain of worship is Gerizim. Nope, the Jews said it's Jerusalem. Who's right? Well, she asks him. She says, oh, finally, I got a prophet. I can ask a question. She says, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem it's the place where men ought to worship. Then Jesus said unto her, woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father you worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour comes, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I love this. She says, which mountain? And Jesus doesn't really even answer her question. He doesn't say, well, it's Mount Zion or it's Mount Gerizim. He doesn't say that. He says, you know what? The Father is seeking people and the time is now where God is seeking those who are willing to worship him in spirit and in truth. You know, I see some churches getting all up in a tizzy right now because of the coronavirus, COVID-19. That we can't meet in our churches and you're breaking our constitutional rights and all this stuff. And I understand, I understand the problem. And it's, we're looking forward to getting people back here in the building, really looking forward to that. And it'll happen. But here's the thing. We don't have to worry about, you know, the biblical part of this. Did you know that the Father is seeking those? It doesn't matter which mountain or which building that we gather in. It it matters that we're worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. I wonder if this is a good season for us as Christians to maybe de-emphasize the actual location where we attend church. That's one thing that's coming out of this COVID-19 thing is we're saying, we just need to worship God. That's why you're here online with us worshiping the Lord because you can do it in your house. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the custom of some. So gathering together, of course, it's valuable and important. But Jesus is saying, man, it doesn't matter which mountain. It's more about God who seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not as much location as much as it's attitude and, and heart to worship the Lord. Okay, so after he answers that question, the woman said unto him, verse 25, now she's getting real, real close here, real close. 
The woman says, I know that the Messiah comes, which is called the Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Bam. (laughs) Big moment of the story. Jesus says, I'm that one you're calling the Christ. I'm the Messiah. Now, does she believe this? This is important. I think the answer is yes. Um, by, by the way, the reason I ask this is I've met people that claim to be the Messiah. I remember years ago, I was at church uh, as an assistant pastor, and they came running and Brett, they need you out in the, in the uh, sanctuary because there's a guy, and he's, claim, he's, he's doing all kinds of weird stuff, and he's freaking everybody out. And so I went into the sanctuary, and the, what I saw was this guy in a kind of like a tuxedo, polyester, light blue tuxedo with frill, frills on it. And he was standing, which that would have been very uh, unusual in a church like ours because we were all in shorts and tees and flip-flops. And so we, we, I saw this guy, um, and, and he had a beard and kind of scruffy hair. And, and, um, and I walked up to him. I said, sir, you know, uh, how are you doing? Uh, and he said, I am fine. I thought, oh boy, just the way he looked at me. I thought this, something's, really, something's really going on. And the more I talked to him, I said, hey, do you, do you know you know, are you, are, you, are you a believer? Are you a Christian? And he said, yes. And I said, do you know Jesus Christ personally? And he said, I that speaketh unto thee am he. Uh-oh. <laughs> we got a problem. Houston, we got a problem. Because I knew the guy in the polyester tux was not Jesus the Messiah. Uh, how did I know that? Let's just call it a discerning of spirits. And it wasn't the right spirit. And I didn't see the white horse, nor did I hear the trumpet sound, the second coming of Christ. So I knew that that wasn't Jesus. And I knew the poor guy was just mentally off. So we tried to minister to him and help him. And, but he was, he was a guy claiming to be the Messiah, just like this right here. Did this woman think he was a looney tune saying that? The answer, no. Why? Because Jesus, he had an authority. People, people looked at him and heard him, and he says he speaks as one having authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. There was something about Jesus where there was just a weightiness to what he said and who he was. So what happens? So after Jesus says, I that speak unto thee am he, verse 27, and upon this came his disciples. His, his disciples, they remember they were getting meat in town. They come stumbling up and they see Jesus talking to the woman of Samaria, who's probably a prostitute. And they're like, oh. but what do they do? It says, they marveled that Jesus talked with the woman, yet no man said anything like, what seekest thou? Nobody had dared walk up. What are you doing, Jesus? Nobody did that. Uh, isn't that funny? The disciples are like, what in the world's going on here? What, what are you doing? Or why are you talking with this woman? They don't ask her that. Ask Jesus that. So this is where the story comes to kind of the part I wanted you to see. It says, Then the woman left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, Come and see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. Isn't this great? Oh, man, we could talk about this. Here's the woman who's probably the prostitute in town. She's probably slept with a lot of those men. And she's like, I just met a guy who told me everything I ever did. And all the men in the town are going, oh no. (laughs) Uh, Like everything you ever did? Yep. And suddenly all the men are rushing out of town to find this guy who knows all the things that the woman ever. It's amazing how the Lord can use situations 
turn things that Satan meant for evil around for good. But now all the town's coming out to meet Jesus because of this woman. I love this story for so many reasons. The most unlikely person in town is the one Jesus chooses to bring the gospel to. And now the whole town's going to get saved because of this woman who was a prostitute. It's a great story. But remember, she, the, the, the story begins where she's bringing her little water pot to the well because she's thirsty. And the end of the story, she leaves that water pot behind and goes and says, man, I found it. I found the Messiah. I found the one we've all been waiting for. I found the one that is the source of water that will allow you to never thirst again. You see, Jesus is just that. He's the well of living water that springs up into everlasting life. And this woman, finally, she meets the very, the very one who's the Messiah that will satisfy her thirsty soul. You see, that's the point that I make here in our story in Isaiah when it says that people are going to come to this well and they'll be with joy. They'll draw out the well of water from the well of salvation. You see, I, I think that's the well of Christ. It says here that we need to be at the well of separation, not as the world wells give. Those wells are fake, false. They don't satisfy. You've got to come to the well of separation. There's only one well that does that. The well of salvation, the rock, Jesus, the water comes out. There's no other rock that salvation comes from. The well of satisfaction, the woman at the well left her water pots and found the very thing that she was thirsty for. She was satisfied. And you that are Christians, you know that to be true. If you've repented of your sins and you confess your faith in Christ, that he's the Messiah, that he died on the cross for your sins, he took the penalty for your sin, died on the cross and rose from the grave, it says you will be saved. And you'll be satisfied through Jesus Christ. Nothing in this world satisfies like Christ. Okay, point number four. We go back to point number one, the well of separation. You see, here's the problem. Remember I told you at first, we need to figure it out that there's a one well that is separated out, the well of Rehoboth, or the well of refreshment and the true living water of Jesus Christ. You've got to find Jesus. There's no other way. But we end with the well of separation because you know what? Here's the problem. If you're an old-timer Christian like me, there's a thing that we have in human nature that makes us want to go and try some of those old wells, the old watering holes. Even though we know Jesus satisfies, even though we know he's fulfilled our thirsty soul, there's something in human fleshly nature that wants to go back to those old places, the old watering holes, the old friends, the old bars, the old sinful things, the addictions of pornography, the addictions of drugs and alcohol. There's something within us that we, we, we taste and see that the Lord is good and we know that he satisfies, but it's like the cow that sticks his head through the barbed wire fence. We used to have that in our cows. You know, we had these great fields where the cows could just, you know, eat the grass, but the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And I remember these cows would have all these scratch scars on their necks. Certain cows would always be reaching through the barbed wire trying to eat the grass out here. Meanwhile, it was the same exact grass that was on their side. But they're like, oh, if I could only get to that grass. Moo. <laughs> some of us, some of you are doing that today. You're trying to go back to the old things, even though you know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That he's the one that satisfies. And yet we still think that somehow... Let me, let me just kind of share with you what happened there in Jeremiah's day. He, uh, he talks about the same thing. For it's in Jeremiah chapter 2, and here the prophet Jeremiah calls out the people of Israel for the same thing. Listen, 
In Jeremiah 2.13, it says, For my people have committed two evils. They have, number one, forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And number two, they've hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What did they do? Two evils. They've forsaken the fountain of living water. It's a, it's a fountain where blessings come out, the blessings of salvation and eternal life. And it's this fountain that's just flowing of living water. They've forsaken the fountain and they said, let's just go to the cisterns. What's a cistern? In Bible times, they would hew out of stone these big cisterns that hold water. But oftentimes those old cisterns would crack, broke uh, broken cisterns, and they would leak water. They'd be good for nothing. By the way, this is kind of an interesting thing. When you go to Israel with us, we get to see a bunch of these cisterns. They, 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 you know, there's cisterns that were hewed out of stone, and some of them still hold water to this day. Like there's in, in Petra, there's cisterns where the Nabataeans, back before the Roman Empire was there, um, they were collecting water from rain, and they'd pour into these cisterns that they'd hewn out of stone. And those are still working to this day. It's an amazing thing. But a lot of the cisterns in ancient times, when the earth quakes or something, the cisterns crack and then they leak water. And they're good for nothing. So what do they use them for after they're broken? Tombs, where they bury dead people. It's an amazing thing. And here's the Lord speaking through Jeremiah saying, my people Israel, they've done two things that are evil. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And they've turned to these old broken cisterns thinking that somehow they're going to get fresh water out of those, but they're broken cisterns and they don't even hold water. You see, that's why I add this well of separation at the end as well as at the beginning. First, you've got to be saved and accept Christ and see that he's the well of living water. Then as you get older in your faith, there's this proclivity of humanity to go back to those old watering holes that never satisfied to begin with. And we're like the cow reaching across the barbed wire fence trying to get to the greener grass when we realize that Jesus is the salvation that we want, that we need. He's the the way to eternal life in heaven, but we just need to trust in that well and trust that Jesus is the one that satisfies. Are you an old-timer Christian who's trying to go to those old broken cisterns? And you're only going to find them to be empty again, as you found before. But that's just human nature. Watch out for that, Christian friends. We got to we got to stay with the well of living water, Jesus Christ. He should be your one and only, the well of separation, the well of salvation, the well of satisfaction. What a key that is. If you're not a Christian and you want to accept Christ, it's so simple. What you do is Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says, first, you know, you got to understand you're a sinner and your punishment is death eternal. But Jesus is the one who saves us from our sins and gives us eternal life. And if you confess with your mouth, Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ that says God will save you. You are saved from your sins if you confess that he died on the cross for you, was buried, and then rose up from the grave. You will be saved. That's what the Bible says. So you can just pray that prayer right now, just you and the Lord, right where you're at. Say, Lord, I believe in you. I accept the work of the cross that you came and lived among us, died on the cross for our sins rose up from the grave, and you can know you're forgiven for your sins. You're saved, and you're going to heaven. And now you're drinking of that well, the living water of Jesus Christ. I hope you see that. If you're an old-timer Christian, watch out for the other wells. They'll try to lure you away and make you think that somehow the water over there is better, but it's not. Stick with the well of living water, Jesus Christ. 
And Lord, we're so thankful that you satisfy our thirsty souls. We're so thankful, Lord, that you've blessed us with eternal life. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are thirsty. For people that are thirsty for not ever knowing you or never being saved, I pray that you'd, Lord, just wrap your arms around them, that they would know their need for for your love and your salvation. And I pray, Lord, that that they would also, uh, those that are saved and been Christians for a long time, Lord, that they would see the folly of trying to go back to those old watering holes. Lord, keep us at that well of separation where there's room for us, where there's salvation and satisfaction. So bless your people today on this sunny Sunday morning. May our hearts be rejoicing as in that day of the millennial kingdom when people will draw from the well and with joy celebrate that that salvation that you give. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. To take advantage of our media ministry, we encourage you to visit us anytime at athecreek.com, where we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download.